was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so glad to be able to present part two of my conversation with the amazing Brandon Maggart. Today, he discusses the second half of his career, including the Broadway shows Lorelei, Musical Chairs, One Night Stand, and We Interrupt This Program, and his many TV roles including Brothers, Sesame Street, Chicken Soup, and more. And now, without further ado, Brandon Maggart. Go ahead. Um, I would love to resume with talking about Lorelei, which I believe is where we left off. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, about Lorelei, it's going to take a while, Charles, because of it's, it's such a unique show business story, I think. Because I thought we'd talk about this in the sense that you know, this was went on the road for a year, a tryout for a whole year. So this was a unique uh, uh, beast, so to speak. So it, the producer of this was Lee Goober. Uh, Lee Goober started out, Lee Goober, Ford and Gross started out producing things in summer stock. And uh, he had the big thing with Westbury the theater was a wonderful place. And Goober had been married to, uh, Barbara Walters for a while, and I think they were divorced by now. But he was, he was, he was a nice guy. I knew him, and he was a producer. So by that time, at the end of applause, which was my one and only huge big hit, and and I got the Tony nomination for. I was, I was, but at that time, my life was falling apart. I, my personal life. I was uh, I was about to become uh, separated and divorced from Lou Jan, and I had the five children there, and I was I was drinking heavily at the end of uh, as you know, later on I told you that I I am an alcoholic. I've been an alcoholic for many years, but I've also been clean and sober for over forty years now. But in in that time, it was a there was a rough stretch there for me and. And everybody involved. So, but at the end of applause, I had, I went into a show called Wedding Band down at the Public Theater. Joe Papp directed BD and Jim, Jim Jimmy Broderick starred in it. And Joe Papp directed it, and I loved doing that show. And uh, I played the bell man. I had did my song and dance number and played my cornet and and did dancing around selling socks and things to the to the to the colored neighborhood mostly to ruby d and i was enamored of ruby and that didn't go anywhere of course but and then while i was doing that i was again drinking after the show not drinking but i got a call from um, lee goober's office they wanted me to carol channing wanted me to go on tour with her and play the the comic male lead uh, opposite her that peter palmer would be the uh, romantic lead and I would be the character male lead opposite her and he was he was to be the uh, 
the um, button king and I was to be the zipper king. Now the whole thing was to take place on a shipboard romance thing, sailing from, the, from New York to London, I believe it was. So it was a light thing and Joe Layton was the director and he thought about all the shipboard people should look like shipboard people and not look like, uh, uh, you know, models and everything like it. Like to have a lot of beautiful women and guys and stuff. But he thought there should be you know, some short people, some tall people, and, you know, look like normal people. And that's the way we opened in, in Oklahoma like that. But the first I want to talk about. So I show up for rehearsals. And we rehearse in, on, the, on the Upper West Side in a, in a hotel room, a hotel ballroom place, just a few blocks from where I lived. On, uh, on, uh, I was staying with yeah. Diane McAfee at the time. And Diane, remember, she was the original Eve Harrington. Yeah. And we had come back together at, at, and for a while. And, and, and Tamara Long, I'd never met Tamara. And Tamara was living at one block away. We she lived at 170 West 70 third. We lived in 170 74th. And, and uh, we met there. And Tamara was the unique person in my life. She she was a healer. She uh, gave people diets. She, matter of fact, two years before she holed up in an apartment, and people would not on her door and she'd open the door and peek out and she'd look at them and B vitamins, what vitamins they need, what they need to eat. And she apparently saved people's lives like that. She was a, a really brilliant fruitcake that had a voice like would cut steel. You know, she was in Dames at Sea and, and, and everything. So I met her, and you know, we'll get into that later, but she kind of straightened me out, cut me off from drinking. But now I'm going to go back to the first day of rehearsal there. was really nice. I felt, oh boy, well, I'm going to get out of town because I was doing wedding band. And then I said, I goes off of the part. So I got out of wedding band to do this. I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give, uh, give my wife, she gets the house. I'm going to give her the checkbook. I'm going to go on the road for a year, clean up my life, save a little money and, and see what can do that way. So that was the plan. And I would go to have a good time and, and just we would clear up my head, clear up my life. And um, so first, first lunch break, uh, uh, you know, everybody would go out to get a hot dog or whatever. And Carol was over here, she had a thermos. Uh, she had her lunch. Peter Palmer sat down beside her, the, the thing. And I said, after I said, Peter, did she have a, a, a lunch and a thermos? He said, yeah, Brandon. It was fish. <laughs> he said, I thought I was going to die. The smell was so bad. But I could see then Carol was taking care of herself. She was taking care of her health and her body. You know, she was doing. Now, the, the backbone of this story is Charles Lowe. Charles Lowe is Carol's husband. And he was uh, her husband and manager. And he took care of everything involved in everything she did. Carol one point said that, 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 you know, she was a big star. Then she'd already been on the, uh, on the cover of Life magazine and, 
that, that she'd met Car uh, Charles and it was up to his office and he said, okay, he said, I'm gonna plan, he said, right away, he's a take charge person. Okay, here's the plan. On Wednesday, we're gonna have lunch here, we're gonna Thursday, we're gonna do this, we're gonna meet the press thing on the thing. Saturday, we're gonna get married. Sunday, she said, wait a minute, Charles, what was it you said about Friday? <laughs> he said, oh, we're getting married. She said, oh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> so they got married. And so here they are. And he literally, he ran the business, he ran her, he ran the business of wherever she was supposed to be, had all the publicity people lined up. She had, her job was to go on stage and do the show, get into her spotlights. You know, she had three spotlights. She had, no, she had two for herself and one that somebody else was in a scene with her. But if nobody else was right there and she was doing numbers, she had three spotlights. And so with that blonde hair, the big eyes and everything, and Charles Lowe himself said, uh, said that everything else and everybody else on stage, they were like gray, they were wallpaper. And so all the audience saw was Carol Channing in the bright, the bright light looking out the audience. So, so that, uh, and then within which, okay, so then we, okay, we go on the road. We're going to open in Oklahoma. Our first stop is in uh, Oklahoma, and there was some sort of big um, society person, publicity person, and I can't think of her name right now, but as soon as we get off the plane, she had the, an Indian tribe to meet us at the airport. It had put on a headdress for Carol. She did dance around with them and singing song and so forth. So Charles was in cahoots with everything. His job was to put people in seats sell tickets, put people in seat, and, and take care of Carol. See that Carol was in the spotlight to see the show and see she wasn't bothered, but he worked her like a mule, I'm telling you. Because every stop that she was, we rehearsed, you know, we did eight shows a week. We re rehearsed and the changes and everything. And he had her out before the rehearsal every day doing interviews on radio shows and everything. I don't know how she stayed alive. But anyway, when we opened in, um, in Oklahoma, it was okay. We did, we did okay. And, uh, and I had a duet with Carol. I, I had a big aria thing called I'm Alive, I'm a Tingle, I'm a Glow. I was in several other numbers. And I had a duet that I loved. I loved doing this duet with Carol. For the life of me, I can't remember the name of it was because it was short-lived, but it was, it was in the first act, and it was much like you probably saw Woman of the Year with Lauren Bacall and, and, and Cooper, and how that duet, The Grass is Greener, that was like one of the greatest numbers of all time, where Bacall played straight and Cooper played, had the, the laughs. Well, this was set up, you know, Carol is supposed to be the funny person in the show, and I, I told her I was the comic, so I, I wasn't told to be the straight person yet. You know, to but to to you know turn things over to her, and um, so uh, we had this number, and and she would when Carol you come on stage, Carol would look at you like, my name is Mr. Gage. She say, well, my, why Mr. Gage? And then once she'd look at you, so that that the audience would know who she was talking to, no matter what. She would say, why Mr. and Mr. Mr. And then from that point out, she would just look out into the spotlight over the, her focus seemed to be like 
like the first the balcony or something, like over the orchestra, but you look out and like posing like that with the big eyes and look to Mr. Gaze. And when she looked out like great, my reaction was to look out and see what she was looking at. <laughs> the audience and the audience saw that I was looking up to see what the hell she was looking at, but she was just looking out, being seen. Now that was her character, but to this guy that I was playing, he wasn't on to that yet, so he looked out. So I got we did I I did get I got the laugh. She got some, but I got a lot of laughs in it, and of course it didn't last long because I'm not supposed to get the laughs. And they, we did, did it like almost the end of the first week. And I came off stage, stage right. And Joe Layton, the director, was standing in the wings. And he said, Brandon, I have to admit, you're really good in that number, but it's got to go. Joe, what do you mean it's got to go? It's got to go. Oh, OK, it's got to go. So that's show business. But I'm not, oh, yeah, that's probably because anyway. And then we, then we moved on to Dallas. I think Dallas was the next stop. Now, Joe Layton, when he finished, when he directed and we opened, he disappeared. He couldn't find him. He's gone for like oh, two months or something. He didn't know what was happening. And so we didn't have a director. And a Betty, Nate, Betty Compton and Adolph Green came in. They, along the way, they fired Kenny Soms and Gail Parent, who originally wrote the book and the book and in, in the and, and the, the lyrics, but Julie Stein was, of course, wrote uh, the music all the way. Uh, but um, they were fired. And uh, yeah. along the way, I was still in Charles Goodstead. He would bring me the New York Times Sunday puzzle every, or see that I got it. He knew that I liked to do the Sunday New York Times puzzle, and he didn't like to do it. So he had the stage manager bring it to me every Sunday. So even though he cut my number, had my number cut, you know, we knew. He had it done. Joe Layton didn't cut it. He he had it done. Got the number. And uh, okay, so uh, and I was still I was still in good stead there. But the show was falling apart. You know, we did change it to do this. They bring they had a different choreographer. Tucker Tucker came in as the choreographer for a while, and they'd move this number, move that number around. And Dodie Goodman. Now Dodie Goodman was you know the characters were. Myself, Peter Palmer, Tamara Long, Leroy Reams. <laughs> Leroy, Leroy. <laughs> Leroy and Tamara danced their butts off on the show. And Bob Fitch and Johnny Minio were also in it. And they danced and wonderful dancing and everything was terrific, but never fit everything, but everything still was tailored to focus and center uh, Carol Channing and, and Lorelei. And uh, so Dodie Goodman at one point, you know, when I took to Leroy, told Leroy, I said, Dear Leroy, dear, I know, I know what's wrong with this show. What's wrong with this show? They take a pile of this over here and they move it over to there to that pile. And then they get another pile and they move it over there to another pile. Then they take another pile and move that pile back over to this pile. And what we got over the end is a big pile of, you know, what? <laughs> She was a kid. And, and of course, Dodie was famous. She's very funny, but she wasn't given a chance in the show at all. I, I mean, she had blah, 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 and that's it. She's off. But Jack Fletcher played her, her husband, whatever it was. Brooks Morton started out, and they, they let him go, but Jack Fletcher came in. 
and 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 so she had very little to do and and, and you know it doesn't go well if you're really funny you know re you're really funny the show's in trouble and you know what you can do and you, you're just stifled there so then we limp along we in, we go to baltimore and i may, I may have these stops confused but now i talked to you earlier about children and how my dad wouldn't, didn't let me to come to uh, where he worked because the people back to the guys and the mechanics in the back used curse words and so forth. So we, when we got to Baltimore, it was close enough to New York. So my kids, by that time, they, they, I had bought a house in, in Connecticut, in Darien, and there was a train, direct train shot all the way down to Baltimore. So they came down for the, to see the show in Baltimore for a week. With, not to Jennifer and uh, and Justine were a little older. They didn't anyway. Uh, but my son uh, uh, Garrett and, and my daughter Julianne and my son Brand came down and spent the week with me in Baltimore. Saw this show. I like to have my kids see where I'm working, see the way people I'm working with, see the, the shows and how things are done, and and it's not all pretty. And I took them uh, uh, on Saturday morning. You know, with matinee and then an evening performance Saturday. So, oh, I've got the train schedule. I take them to the train to send them back to Connecticut, and uh, I'm uh, I'm excited about it. And everything went well. They're on the train, and I got on the train with them. Now, all my life I've had a nightmare. Many actors will tell you the actor's nightmare. You know, you've heard all this nightmare, and I've had I had one last night, but it wasn't really an actor's nightmare; just a nightmare. <laughs> I think I ended up, I was broke. I, I ended up, I didn't have any money. <laughs> but I was trying to find a way to survive. Uh, but so I got them on the train Saturday morning, got them on the train, and I'm getting ready to say goodbye. And uh, about to say, Dad, you better get off. I said, no, I got plenty of time here like this. And all of a sudden, the door closed. Oh. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I got a matinee to do. And this train is going to first first stop is Washington, and then on like this. So the first chance I got to get off is Washington the door. I said, "Oh, guy comes." I said, "You got open the door, please. I have to get off." I, I matinee. Uh, I'm with Carol Channing at the theater here. It, they don't have an understudy for me. Uh, it's a nightmare. They, under, they don't have an understudy for me. I have to be there. If it, I, I'll be sued for everything. I, I said I don't have anything, but they'll sue me for everything there is anyway. He said, "I'm sorry." He said, this is automatic. The train door doesn't open until we get to, until we get to uh, uh, Washington. What? I'm doomed. The world has come down. But I do have a phone. I got in touch with the stage manager. Ben, I said, Ben, I'm on a train to Washington. I can't, I can't get off till we get to Washington. He said, why, Brandon, you know, we don't have an understudy yet. I said, I know, but I'm, I'll do everything I can. He said, you have to be here, Brandon. And I was like, the conductor says, there is an outside chance that once we get to uh, uh, to Washington, there's a, it's a Saturday morning, so the schedule's a little off, but once the train gets to Washington, there, there, there's a layover of about five minutes there. So, there's a chance that we might pull in just as they're pulling out. I doubt it because of the schedule. 
So indeed though we pull in and there it is over there. The door is open, it's, it's closing as I run, run out of this train into that train, your door closes. I wave to the kids, they're going to kind of, I went back <laughs> and I was in, in my dressing room at half hour sitting there exhausted, ready to go on and do the show. So that's, that's one of the actor's nightmares that almost, almost came true. Now then, Charles, we went on to, uh, to Detroit and we stopped in Detroit and um, I was still okay. I still had my big number and I was, I was still, I'm, I'm very inventive mind and I had a lot of entrances and exits and I would make flying leaps because my character was a health nut based kind of on Bernard McFadden's character. So I was like the first, I'd make flying leaps and great stage movements. And I knew, okay, I'm good. I'm, I'll, I'll manage this. I'll, I'll, I will, my bodily movements, my, my just, uh, I would interest his exits and my manner. I would, I'm, I'll be fine. I didn't need to do that. I still had my big number. We're doing everything. So we got to, and we opened in Detroit. I a big hit there and we're good. And so there's a big party in, in the Carol's dressing room after opening night. And Lee Goober was there. He flew out from New York and Betty and Adolph were, were there. And it was, I thought it's a celebra celebratory kind of thing. And I went and was invited to come into the dressing room. I came in and Lee Goober was there and he said, Brandon, Says when I last time I saw this show, it was about this little girl from Little Rock, and now it's about the this health food nut. I said, Lee, don't say that out loud. I said, Charles, and I looked, and Charles was standing there looking at him, oh. giving us the, the the you know the slant eye kind of thing, and I knew right then I was in trouble, that maybe I was doing too much. And sure enough, then we got to Chicago. But I knew I was, I was still, you know, doing quite well in the show. And so we got to, and Lee, I mean, and Lee Gubert said, you know, <laughs> really, really good, Brent. And we got to Chicago, and and I got called it. Lee wanted to meet me before before we opened. Wanted to meet me at the theater. I said, oh my God, they're gonna. Oh, this is great. He's going to give me a raise or <laughs> some stupid something like that. So I got to the theater and, and Lee said, Brandon, very dour looking, which is unusual for him. He, you know, standing in the middle of the stage, just the two of us in the work light. He said, you've got to cut all your business. I said, what? You have to cut all your stage movements, your business, your exits, all this stuff. You, you have to cut all that out. I said, oh, I said, all right, Lee, if you do that, you're going to have to call a full cast rehearsal because it's going to change blocking. It's going to change a lot of stuff and it's going to take out some time in the show. He said, okay, so they called rehearsal and they did it. We went on that night and did the show. And I just went out and did my thing and came off. Now, when we go, to, we, we usually rode a bus the cast did from the theater back to the hotels. And Charles and Carol usually took a, a, a limousine, you know, of course, star limousine thing. After the show, they took their limo back, which is understandable. But for some reason, I don't know, the limo must have been broken that night or something. Now, this was the night after all my stuff had been cut out. And we were on the bus going back to the hotel. 
and there was a sometimes you know family little, little bits of families traveled with the, like a couple of the guys had kids and one guy had a little boy and, and the little boy sat up front and he was sitting right next to Charles and Carol and I was sitting in the back and this little boy got up and stood up and said hey Brandon I said what he said why did Carol make you stop being funny the bus that bus just got really quiet and nobody said a word nobody said anything we went all the way home to quiet and they got off but um, that was the story of that and then from then um, Justine was there and 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 <laughs> anyway they, they just ended a long story about going to the hospital and stuff and about to miss a show there thought we we're gonna have to cut Julianne's toe off I don't know it's crazy stuff and then the kids flew back to Connecticut and and their mom Lujan was wasn't thrilled with my uh <laughs> being a on the road father we're letting the kids get all sick and nearly going to the hospital and everything but then my son brand did tour with me that this is all i told you this is a long story oh. but it is a show business long story of so then brand goes with me and he we go to, to somewhere else i don't know and he's with me for a couple of weeks on tour and uh, that was the first time brand i think he'd ever seen a woman topless we were at a swimming pool and one of the girls' top came off, Tamara's top, and she was rather flat chested. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't impressed. <laughs> anyway, so he was. Then we went to. We made it to L.A. Big opening. And well, actually, the first week in L.A. First, we did a, a charity benefit performance opening night, or the night before opening, in L.A. Now, for the charity, it was. It was almost like playing. Palm Beach. I don't know if you, the, Palm Beach has a Royal Port Sand playoff. And usually opening night there, I played there with Vivian Vance and Barefoot in the Park years before. But opening night there, there's a lot of money in Palm Beach. And it was a lot of money out here in, in LA for a benefit. So uh, there were diamonds, tiaras, and everybody in the audience, a lot of really old people just sitting there like tombstones. And so we, we went, uh, uh, we, we during the show and Carol couldn't get a laugh. Nobody could get a laugh, just these old people with money sitting there. They, they paid a lot of money for charity and they were not impressed with the show. And it was at the Schubert Theater with the acoustics weren't good. The Schubert's gone now, but the acoustics weren't very good there anyway. But they, they just were really quiet and Carol would go, yeah, nothing. It was crickets, just crickets. It was awful. Now I'm out, I'm out on stage doing my, I'm alive, I'm a tingle, I'm a glow number. I don't know if you know that number, but it's like an aria. It's like a big, I'm alive, I'm a tingle, I'm a glow. <laughs> Again, based on Bernard McFadden, it was really full blown ariatic kind of thing. You, you probably heard it on the album, but uh, I'm out singing it and nothing's happening. I'm just blasting away, no reaction from the audience. And all of a sudden, I hear from the heavens or somewhere, I hear, ah, 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 ah. And it, it was Tamara Long's voice coming from the, the stage manager had forgotten to turn off her body mic. And she was in her dressing room vocalizing while I'm singing this big number out on stage. And she was my competition. 
you know, it, well, I was welcome to have it. I, I thought this is fun. And I was laughing, singing this song too, because I wasn't getting anything from the audience. At least I was getting, a, the, you know, the angel of doom from up there in the, the rafters singing out the vocalist from them. So uh, I loved it. I always had a sense of humor about any sort of tragedy. I would laugh rather than become hysterical. And try, uh, even from bad reviews, I enjoyed them too. But uh, so the, the next day, the review came out in the LA Times, and Sylvie Drake, who's the critic at the time, said said that I was uh, that was very good. But Brandon Maggard, very good. But he needs another number. And I read that, and I said, "Ooh, so." This is good. Maybe they even pick me up with another number. So, oh, I got a call. Oh, go to a rehearsal. Oh my goodness, I'm getting another number. So we go down and I go to in this Milton Rosenstock, the wonderful conductor, uh, was, was there. As a matter of fact, Milton and I were working on a musical on the side, but Hunchback of Notre Dame after he's dead. In the, <laughs> but we never finished that. But he was there, and uh, I think Betty and Adolph. There and it was stark, and it said, What well, said? All right, Brandon, we're cutting your number. I'm alive, I'm a tingle, I'm a glow. I said, What? Yeah, we're cutting the number. And from now on, when you're on stage with Carol, you look at her, and when she says her line, you stay focused on her no matter what she does until she leaves the stage. You think right. You, you face into the wings and you say your lines without inflection. Just say the lines like they were coming out of a machine. Blah, 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 blah. It should and go up that's it. And I thought, well, they're obviously trying to get rid of me, trying to get me to leave the show, but I couldn't leave the show. I had, I had five kids. I wasn't about to leave that salary. I was making pretty good money at the time. And Peter Palmer at one point, he, he told me, I'll tell you why later on, he was going to quit himself, but he had five kids. You can't quit. You know, you get a show that runs. A lot of people, if you're single, you can say, oh, I'll go into another thing. But if you have, you have to keep a lot of ships afloat, you squeeze the money out of most everything you can. So uh, I went back and I found out that, that George Burns. So he was friends with Carol. They had worked together and and uh, and so they were social with them. And he had apparently come to see op the opening, uh, the opening night. And and I was told by them to tell me that Charles, that, that George Burns had said that, that he would never ever have allowed Gracie, his wife Gracie Allen, to be on stage with that man, talking about me. So I said, and this is, I said, and this is coming from God Himself. You know, George Burns played God in the movie, right? Okay. <laughs> so I was more or less just a, I'd been castrated. I was just a steer roaming around every once in a while, making an entrance and, and, and an exit. And uh, it was very sad, but at least I kept getting a paycheck. And uh, it, was, it was some bitter stuff to swallow, but at least, and we, we, so we still, we had some more stops to do. And we had the, Carol had a big, her, her big number. She had a big change. She'd do this big number, I forget, and go off stage and then come right back on, do a change, do the number, go off stage and quick change, come back on stage 
and do the scene. So we're all out on stage on the shipboard. She does this big number. She goes off on a stage. So uh, Donnie Goodman, Peter Palmer, Timer Long, Peter, and, and Leroy Aaron at a table like on the shipboard there. And she goes off and, and many she she wouldn't make the change. She couldn't, she never made the change. So you can't let her, you know, give me a minute on stage with as a dead air. So I would ad lib. I couldn't make the change. And I would still so left up and I would talk. And opening night, one place, you know, opening nights, at least back then, the orchestra wore tuxedos, right? Uh, uh, and so I said, Miss Lee is not here yet. It's not a wonderful ship. I'd walk up, why, my goodness, look over here. There's a big hole over here. And I'd walk to the lip of the stage, look down where the orchestra people are there in their tuxedos. I said, my goodness, there's a big hole over here filled with penguins. <laughs> and they're playing instruments. I would make up stuff and I would have a great time. But, uh, and, and, she never, and she never said, nobody said thank you for ad-libbing. Never ever, for all the way back, we got to New York. And we got to New York. Once we hit the Palace Theater, the very first night there, she made the change. And Ray Agion, who did the costumes, wonderful costumes from the show, he apparently the zipper zipper or something didn't work. He'd fix it. So anyway, fix it so she can make the change. So the first night there, she makes the change. I don't have to ad lib, but we do the scene fine. We come off stage and I'm over to one side and Carol goes back. I said, Carol, you made the change. He said, believe me, now this is word for word. I said, Carol, you made the change. He said, why, Brandon, did you think the audience had any interest in what you had to say? <laughs> like, how dare, you know, did I have the audacity to think that the audience was would have any interest in anything I had to say, and I I was going to say fine good you made the change I did say that, but she, in other words just a, a slam in my face another thing and again they were trying to get me to to, to uh, leave the show but I wasn't I was stuck and I told you so I I didn't and um, and I stayed with the the whole thing till uh, till the closing but. I had missed one show and 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 my mother died back in when I missed a show in LA. And I was gonna miss a show in when we were in San Francisco. But I flew my mother had was very sick. I flew to Tennessee. My my mother was in a coma, so I, I saw she was gonna be maybe six months. So the doctor said, You might as well go back. I caught the plane, drove, got to San Francisco, the cab driver got me to the stage door in time. I ran in and to the stage door and Carol, you know, she hated understudies to go on. And she's all upset that Brandon's gone to his mother's dying. I dare she, he missed the show. And so she saw me come through and I, I heard her yell out, Brandon goes on, just as I was going through. And so I, I went up, got my costume, had to rearrange it because my understudy was a little taller, but I went on. And, and did the show. But uh, the thing was, the poor guy, the understudy had invited his parents, a party of six to see him come on stage because he was from San Francisco. It was a big night. He was going to be on stage with Carol Channing. 
to get his family there to see it. And here it comes out. No, he doesn't show up. It's me. I show up. And so poor guy was, he was just a mess. So I, I reimbursed him for his, his tickets that he paid for his parents to see the show. I, I couldn't afford him. Carol and Charles wouldn't, they didn't care. They wouldn't pay for, they wouldn't pay for anything. Then we got to New York and she made the opening thing there. And we ran for a while. And towards the closing, I, I wanted to go to my daughter Jennifer's graduation. She, and she was graduating high school in Darien, Connecticut. And, and, and I, you can't miss a daughter's, my oldest daughter's high school graduation. I couldn't go. And so I said, uh, I, I want to go. And they said, well, you have to ask Carol and Charles if you can, because I was going to miss one show. I probably miss one show. And I said, oh, this is not good. So they said, no, I, I couldn't go. So I went to Actors Equity. I said, look, I want to miss a guy. I won't tell you who he was. He's the head guy there. And he said, look, just call in sick and miss the show. So, uh, and well, I said, my ethics dictate to me that I'm on. So I told him I was going to miss the show. And um, no, I, at that time I didn't. So I, I went on, I did the show and I got back and I, I was at home. And now when Carol and Charles got to the theater and they found out I wasn't there, they hit the ceiling and they called where I was staying at the time. Uh, with, with Diane, and it said, "Can we just speak to Brandon?" What she said, "Well, he's here. He's going to his daughter's graduation." She said, "Well, we're going to be there with our, our doctor, our personal doctor, after the show, to make sure that he's really sick. We don't think he's sick. We're going to be there with our doctor after the show." And so. I went to Jennifer's graduation. I came back in plenty of time. I didn't make it before the show, but I, but before the show was over, I was back. And then waiting for them to, to call and show up in the limousine to see if I was sick, but they didn't show up. Then, you know, I was doing wedding band before, before we did this Lorelei. And they were during the run of Lorelei, Joe Papp called me and said that Ruby D wanted me. They were going to do a, a full version of the of the play for for ABC Television that filmed the whole show, and that Ruby wanted me to come back and play the part, and, and he did too. And would I do it? And I said, Well, I have to, but I it's one problem. I got to get out of the. If I have to miss any shows, that uh, they were shooting in Brooklyn, he said, Well, maybe you won't have to miss any shows. But my my agent was Milton Goldman, and Carol's agent or lawyer was Goldman's uh, uh, partner and they were I mean they were they were not back then they weren't married but they were and it was really odd that my agent was for one side and her business manager was for the other side and here I was I was supposed to do this show and I was and Joe Papp was going to sue me if I missed the show out in Brooklyn we were on the set out there and I said oh I'm going to have to miss this this tonight, tonight's performance, I go on, on the phone with my lawyer and said, Brandon, you can't miss the performance. And I said, but they, he, Joe's going to fire me. Carol's going to fire me. Everybody's going to fire me. I'm in deep doo-doo here. I don't know what to do. And I'm standing there with Ruby D. And they had an understudy. They'd hired an understudy. Had him ready to go on for me to, in, in wedding band to do the film. And Bernie Gersten. You might know him, he's a wonderful oh. assistant, Bernie. 
Bernie walked over and said, Brendan, you really got, got lucky tonight. Said the scene was going to make me miss the show. We can't get to it. We'll get to it tomorrow. And so I made it to the theater and, and I, I did the show. But it was, it was a, a hassle during that long thing, but a wonderful experience to see how, um, how he protected her, Charles Lowe. He kept the show going. And even in the end, we were on the show for a year and an actor's equity is supposed to get a, the chorus especially is supposed to get a year vacation. And they said, and they were about to close the show in the summer, but then business really picked up for all of a sudden. And everybody was about to take, and, and they said, well, told the chorus people, if you take, anybody takes a vacation, Carol will leave, close the show. So that's against equity, you know, but, and, and they brought me up on charges. Uh, Carol and Charles brought me up charges to equity that I was, I'd missed the show going to my daughter's graduation. And, and everybody laughed. Peter Palmer, the deputy said, you know, you can bring him up if you want to, we don't have any grounds. So it was, uh, I had great admiration for Charles and for Carol and her talent. And she has all these wonderful fans. My, my best thing I like, Carol had an act that she didn't do in the show called something Sisyphon. It was, she, she did an act of an old movie star who had a, a, oh. a lisp. You know that one? Yes. Yeah. And it was so funny. I can, it was hysterical, but she wasn't that funny on stage during the show. I didn't think, a lot of people didn't. You know, she used to throw out rings. She had these fake rings, throw them out to the audience. We are on the road sometimes, the audience would throw them back. It was, it was terrible. And Charles went we were in, in the, like out in places like that. Charles would walk around in the balcony. The balcony would be empty. And he'd walk over on this side of the balcony and he'd go, ha, 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 ha. It's something Carol said. Nothing, nobody else would laugh and we'd all, oh God. And then you hear him later on, he'd be on the other side of the balcony. Ha, 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 ha. But he was pumping that girl, for, excuse me, for everything he could to get every buck out of that. Opening nights, he had, well, all during the run, opening nights, and sometimes out of town too, he would find young people or some people, he'd put them in the front row, give them tickets to sit in the front row. So at curtain call, when Carol came out to take her bow, these people would stand. And so when somebody stands up in front of you, you're more than like, you're going to stand too, otherwise that's kind of embarrassing. So we all knew this, you know, Oh, there's that bunch. They're back again. There they are. Oh, the curtain curl, curls on. They stand and some people start standing up, you know. But again, he was the engine behind the whole thing and he kept it going. And uh, of course, they later on got there. They were later on divorced. Charles had his friend, his nice fella. And, but Carol just had the show. And uh, she later on, I think you probably know that she, she met and met married her childhood sweetheart she grew up with in, in, in San Francisco, which is quite a romantic story. I think everybody delighted. She's gone out, of course, but she's still fans that, that simply adored her. But um, for me, that was quite an experience. So that, that's pretty much it. Can I now, after uh, Laura life, there, there was a show coming on television called not ready for primetime players. 
going to be NBC, and every week it was a new cast. I mean, the cast or city cast, and you do a, a review each week. I thought, well, this is crazy. How can they do that? Of course, this is, it was still named uh, not ready for primetime plays, but it, it became known as Saturday Night Live. Oh. That's what became Saturday Night Live. And I'd done all these reviews, I'd done, and so I auditioned for it like four times. And it, like everybody thought I was in it for sure, including me. And there was one other girl, Lynn Lipton, I think was her name, that we were considered we, the only two people in New York that were gonna be in it because everybody else was from Chicago. They'd done shows in Chicago and Canada. And the, so there was a troupe of players. And they, of course, the, the producer, writer, head writer, he was Canadian as well. So that was a, a, just almost a troop of them came in. And so I was called in the office expecting to sign a contract. And they said, um, oh, said, uh, Brandon, we decided to go with the younger cast. That's <laughs> what young test said yeah but we want to use you uh, you know in and out like that and matter of fact the very first show you'll be in the very first show and i don't back then they used to do takeoffs on commercials uh, and you know and so i was to do a commercial dye where you dye your hair grecian formula grecian formula something and i was to dye my skin dark because I was, I was, I was a white basketball player who couldn't make his shots. I would say, every shot I'd, I'd miss, but I put on the Grecian form of this and turned me black, and then I'd make every shot. And I said, Are "You serious? You can't put that on television. <laughs> That's terrible." And sure enough, we didn't get around to it. And the show ran over for I don't know, two couple hours too long, and it was the, and so I said. So I went on and I, I went on and did another show. I'll tell you about it. But I thought, this show can't live. You can't do a review every week. It show you how smart I was. This was 1975 and it's still going. And, and so I went ahead and I did another show. Uh, I did a show called, with uh, Betty Comden, again with Betty Comden and Ada and uh, Straws in the Wind. And it's the American Place Theater. And uh, I loved doing that show. It did a lot of, you know, Judy Stein, Betty Adolph, uh, Peter Stone, uh, great writers at the American Place. Wynn Hanman's the American Place Theater. And uh, Tova Felshu, Josh uh, Marcel, myself, and I think two or three more people. Again, wonderful rehearsing, wonderful dealing with all these sketches with this great writer, Peter Stone wrote it. He said, he said it was his, he thought it was his best sketch, but Tova Felcher and me, it's called My Doctor the Box. And, uh, and it was really funny, but I was off stage. <laughs> Tova was on, they had this huge box out on stage and, and the box was supposed to be the doctor. And Tova comes out and she's, being examined by the doctor, the box. She'd go up and touch the box, and my voice off stage would pick it up, and it would become rather lusty. She'd go, I'd say, a club closer, and she'd go and touch. And she'd, she'd say, that good? And he said, Oh, yes, that's good. Very good. 
<laughs> there was a sketch, the audio just drove it. But I said, thanks, Peter. Your funniest sketch ever, and I'm off stage. It's like Judy Stans, it tapped me in. When we were out of town in Hills, the problem was on the way to, if, if you've ever been to an orchestra rehearsal for the, here, for the cast, here's the orchestra for the first time. Oh my God, that is like the greatest night in show business. Because you're rehearsing for a month or whatever, and you're doing the piano, tick the pink, tick the pink, do all these numbers. And you go in to hear the orchestra for the first time. It is overwhelming. It is so, you, you're almost lifted out, out of your chairs or where you're standing out. It is so wonderful. We're on our way to the theater. Julie Stein stopped me to hear the first rehearsal. He said, Brandon, Brandon. I said, what? He said, if I got a number for you. At that time, I didn't have a very show. If I got a number for you. I said, well, what is it? He says, well, I, I can't tell you too much about it right now, but it, you're going to love it. It is so great. It's called, uh, anyway, you're off stage. I said, wait a minute. I'm off stage. It's called The Great Escapo. This guy's out on stage and can't escape, but you're, on, you're off stage singing this song and it's coming. He <laughs> never got around to it. Of course, the hell's a popping. A lot of things went in and out. You couldn't tell. So then uh, after, after, uh, yeah, after Straws in the Wind, it, it didn't run very long, but I just, I, again, I love doing these shows. Even if they, you know, they were bad, there were some good things, and you work with wonderful people. And I mentioned to you before the people, the the, the writers, the directors, and the rehearsal. There were some wonderful things where you you fail at things, you win at things, you move things around. Sometimes this works if you put this number in that place, and all of a sudden, if all the numbers are in the right place, and it works, or it doesn't work. But it's a, a very exciting process disappointing in some ways when like the first time i did hills of popping for i did two of those facts going first with soupy sales second one was jerry lewis and then right the first one soupy sales and i was writing some of the sketches in that one and and then some of the bits where i played with my my trumpet i did a number with a trumpet and a thing like that but uh, it, it the whole that whole process was it's, it's still in your blood. It's just about creating, working with creative people, wonderful dancers that are, my God, so great. So anyway, I went on from that one to do, a, we closed on a Saturday night and J Jerry Hadley, who was Alex Gunn's stage manager uh, slash director off and on. Jerry ended up di direct, being the director of the Jerry Lewis, Lynn Redgrave, Hills and Poppin. But, but when we closed on Saturday night, and Jerry Adler called me and said, Brandon, said, uh, Alex got a, 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 a straight play of comedy, well, a drama comedy. It said, we're opening next week. We actually been previews already, but we're replacing this guy. And he said, well, you'll need to go on Tuesday night. And I said, what? what? I don't have the script. And he said, well, get to the script. I'll meet you, we'll have rehearsal. Monday afternoon or Tuesday, I had one rehearsal with Holland Taylor, and it was set up like in the building. It says special guest appearance, and on the on the building of the whole thing, Brandon Taylor and uh, Brandon Maggard and Holland Taylor, and so we had this like a Neil Simon type comedy for like the first few minutes of this play, and it's going along. Just some of the critics said we should have kept going with that comedy, <laughs> but. but 
all of a sudden, after we were into it, we're getting laughs and opening night, I'm cooking. I mean, I'm going, I'm going terrific. And, and uh, Holland's good too. And all of a sudden the door bangs open and all these people come in protesting come in with machine guns and from the black, uh, some, some, some community of, I forget what the, anyway, they came in, they wanted to free somebody who was in jail. They were going to hold the theater hostage. And we're going to keep everybody here in their seats until the mayor comes up and meets with us and frees our hostage. So, so we were hostage in there. And so I thought, this is not going to work. If the audience think it's really happening, they'll have a heart attack. And if they don't think it's really happening, they're going to say, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't believe this. Because then we, the, 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 the people, they came in blasting machine guns, and great effects blowing the, from, from the proscenium arch, blowing things. It would be a lot of dead air. So what are you going to do in the meantime? Waiting for the mayor. And it pulled people out of the audience and get, get them up to talk. Excuse <clears throat> me, like there were people in the audience. But you could tell they were actors uh, because they talk like actors. <laughs> Wait a minute, you can tell that guy is talking. He's an actor doing lines he's been given. So they're not buying that. And uh, and then some of them, the guy named the actor, Torian Black is wonderful. He would sit at the piano and play. And he told it like a dirty joke a white person can't tell. And the audience just, you know, but white, you can't tell that, but it worked with him telling a black guy, telling a story like that about a white guy and that, that kind of thing. It, it was, and they had hand grenades and all this stuff. It was, it, it was doomed. But opening night, it was rather, and it, the, the, uh, the guy who wrote it, I forget his name, he came to me and said, Brennan, you were so wonderful. I'm gonna write a new play just for you. Now he'd written one big hit play and I can't remember what it was. I never heard from him again. And then, Alex Cohen came up to me because I was, he said, Alex, I said, Brendan, I owe you one. I said, Alex, you don't owe me anything because I'd worked for him, two big shows and another big TV special with Carol Channing and, and, uh, and, and a lot of other big stars. Yeah. And I would, you know, write, write a lot of stuff to, to boost the show, an uncredited sketch writer and that kind of thing. But that was it. That was it. That was the end of that show. And so I said, well, now what am I going to do? And every month, you see, I had this, I had to come up with some money every month to keep everybody afloat. And uh, I, I got a call. Oh, Brandon, you want to go on the road with Howard Keel for a year to do South Pacific with Howard Keel and James? You played Luther Billis, the great comic role in that. A year with Howard. I said, maybe I'll make some money again. I'll go on the road. And so uh, I, I did with Howard before, years ago, in some stuff. And the matter of fact, was so good to me. He put me in a movie, and with Tina Louie and, and Marty Ingalls, that guy. And uh, a, lot of really, a lot of really people. But Howard, Howard was like a tyrant. You know, because he ran. She ran a tight ship herself. And Howard Keel was the same way, rather rough. So there were two little kids that played the, uh, the, the kids, and uh, 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 kids there that 
that Emil de Beck was going to marry. He had, he had, he had two of these children. And one was Jason, and right away, I forget the other girl's name. But they were to come out and say, and sing, Dictez-moi pourquoi la vie est belle, dictez-moi with Howard, and they would chime in. It was very charming. And these little kids, they were young uh, kids, uh, you know, preteen, and they come out and sing the thing. Now, one time, a guy named Jason missed his cue. He didn't come out to sing Dites-moi with Howard Keelan and, and, and the little girl. And the, the little girl and Howard did it in intermission. Howard called Jason out in front of everybody and yelled at him, this little boy, like, you never, you bad, bad, never miss an entrance. You'd be on stage, you'd come. And he was right. <clears throat> But the poor kid was crying like crazy. He could have, Howard could have done it less effusively. You know, he was just blasting the poor kid. I felt so sorry for him. Two nights later, <clears throat> two nights later, I'm out on stage. I've done the honey bun number with Jane Powell. I'm coming out on stage. And I've got my bit to do with the coconut things and, and the cigarette lighting. And getting burned and waiting to meet Emil de Beck. We planned this thing to meet him to go to solve this thing and catch, catch the Japanese just in time so they don't get us in trouble. So I'm out on stage and I do my business, my comic business, get my laughs. And he's supposed to walk on at that time, Howard. So I finish and he doesn't come on that. And I just glance in the wings and I see Howard is standing in the wings talking to an assistant stage manager, kind of like he talked to Jason. And we, uh, this was sotto voce, though. <laughs> He's, I could see him pointing his finger at the poor stage manager. He said, and I, oh, the light bulb goes on my head. I said, no, I'm going to have some fun out of this one. So <clears throat> he comes, he, I, finally, I said, I don't know that he mailed the back. He's supposed to meet me here like five minutes ago. I don't know. And he hears me talking like, and he comes out on a sitcom and we do the scene. I find Jason, the little kid, in intermission. It's come with me, Jason. We go down there, we're in front of Howard's dressing room, and his door is open. He's in the dressing room, looking out like this. I said, Jason, just stand here with me. Don't say anything. Just stand right here with me. That's it. And Howard looks up and he sees us. And he, he can't say a word because he knows I'm standing there with this little little boy that he's berated so profusely there in front in front of everybody went for missing a cue. When now Howard has missed his cue. And I didn't say anything with him. We just stood there like that. And Howard then looked at us and then looked back and went about his business and we walked off. I cannot tell you how delicious that was. It was so good. I just it was a little bit like, now that story I told you about Tamara and Leroy, can I, can I tell you that again about Leroy and Tamara in the elevator? Oh, yes, yes, please, please do. It's another one of those things where I can't miss, I can pass up that thing with Howard about embarrassing him in front of the kid like that. And with Tamara and Leroy, go back to, it was such a big dance show. 
Cameron Leroy and Bob Fitch and Johnny Minio, and they were dancing like crazy. And, and it was, <laughs> don't, let me tell you about Peter Gennaro. Right? They were dancing like crazy in New York and we'd done Saturday two shows and they were just, they worked their butts off dancing in that show. Matter of fact, they cut my favorite number they did because uh, 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 a kiss apart. I love that number, and they cut that number out of town. I don't. Know. So anyway, it was broke my heart too. Um, I wasn't even in. I liked it, but after the after the second show Saturday night, I'm walking towards the elevator in the Palace Theater. They have the little elevator called the Sarah Bernhardt elevator. It's a tiny little elevator with an accordion door. And they built it there for Sarah Bernhardt, who had one leg missing. So she had to have an elevator built for her to go up to her dressing room. But it was still useful. And a little thing, you could crowd in the elevator operator. And you put open and you could put four or five people in there. And the dancers, they would go up sometimes. Otherwise, they could run up to the dressing room. And usually, I ran up to my dressing room. I was in great shape back then. And, uh, and, I, and I start towards the elevator. And I said, well, I think I'll get on the elevator tonight and talk to Charles, the elevator operator, for a while about things. And I get on, walk over and get in the elevator. And here comes Leroy around the corner. And he's tired and he sees it. He gets on the elevator with us and we're chatting for a minute. He's about to close the door. Here comes Tamara along around the, around the, the corner towards. Now, when we were out of town, uh, Tamara and I had been uh, a couple for a while, uh, lovers. And, and we had a big spat. And, uh, she had a boyfriend who came to town. I didn't understand that. And he left and, and, and I had, uh, Diane came to town for a while. And she didn't understand that. And it, you know, lovers quarrel. But anyway, bottom line is she wouldn't speak to me on stage or off stage. Uh, we're on stage doing a scene uh, she would look at me slightly upstage. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. And when she'd be slightly upstage, I would kind of back up to get looking around. I couldn't pass up having fun with that kind of thing. But here she comes. And, and I never heard of anybody wouldn't speak to you on stage or off stage. But here she comes around the corner. And she looks at, I can see in her eyes, Charles, in her eyes, like there, that son of a bitch is in the elevator. And I'm going to get, I have to get in that elevator. I'm so tired. And I could see it in her eyes. She, she said, I'm going to do it. She walked in, got in that elevator and turned around. Facing the front, didn't acknowledge me. I think she said, Leroy or something. <clears throat> I said, Miss Long, how are you doing this evening? Long show, huh? She said, Leroy, that took Oklahoma accent. Did you ever think you heard somebody? And you turned around and looked, and there was nobody there. And you got really quiet. The elevator door opened. She stepped off. When she stepped off, I kicked her in the butt. Not hard, just kind of lift her cheeks with us with a soccer type kick right under her cheeks there. And she turned around like with eye a flame and looked at me. And she said, and I said, it wasn't me. I'm not here. <laughs> I loved that. I couldn't pass that one up too. So back now, jumping back to, to Howard. So after this, we're back with the, the kid. So the show's over and at the, we played the, um, 
the, the famous theater here. Anyway, we closed there and, and we're going on to the next place and we're going to close for a while. And, and Howard's giving a big closing night party. We're going to close here and open again after Christmas. And so we, uh, we uh, close an opening night party. Now, I, after the show, I have a few drinks. And again, if I see a fastball coming down the middle, I'm going to hit it. So Howard is very, again, he's been so nice to me. I shouldn't have done this, but I, I couldn't pass it up. And so he's toasting everybody. And I told the story about him and G about him berating Jason and we standing him in front of him in front of the, just like I told you before. And then when I finished, the room got really quiet. And I realized I shouldn't have told that story. And Howard walks across the floor. He's got a drink in his hand and he throws it in my face like in an old time movie. <laughs> when he did that, I said, I think I've seen this in a movie, but, uh, and then, then, we, then the tour was over, but uh, I, I couldn't pass up a fastball coming right down the middle, so I hit it. And then we went back to New York, and I was doing Marshall Bear. I mean, he worked once upon a mattress. He wrote a lot of these men's sportswear shows, and were very popular. It's like to, you know, everybody like loved to do them. Barbara Gilbert was very good. Ronnie Graham, Mary Louise Wilson, like everybody. We loved to do these shows because. You got some of the clothes were kind of rotten, but you got clothes and you got funny. And Coach Marshall always wrote this hysterical material to do. I Mark. love Morty Marshall. That one of the funniest guys I've ever met. They wrote a song that for, for Ronnie wrote. Ronnie Graham wrote. It was to the Stars and Stripes Forever. A, 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 a lyrics to Stars and Stripes Forever about clothes, about colors of clothes. Of, 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 and it drove me crazy, hysterical number. But I was doing it, I was about to die. And so on the lunch break, <clears throat> I stretched out on the floor and I felt funny. My heart felt funny. And I went to the doctor and I had a heart attack. So I didn't open it in the show. They had to go on with that one. But uh, I had a major, Charles, I had the, the major heart attack. I had the, called the left anterior descending, the, what they called the, 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 the what you call the, the widow maker, they called it, because you usually die after that. So I had the heart attack, and I, there, and I'd been doing also at the same time doing, I was going to direct the best of new faces. I'd been doing a, a whole bunch of backers auditions for that in Leonard's house, meeting all sorts of wonderful people, old people, young people. And I just, that was having a great time. I was doing too much. Uh, to be honest with you, but I was out of it, Ken. I said, well, I'm out of it. I'm pretty much broke. I got seven kids. I'm in, and, you know, I might not live till the end of the week. And it, it wasn't a great time. And I pulled out of it slowly and started working my way back. And I, I was offered a commercial to do. I said, oh, good, I'll do this. I, could, I had to learn to walk again. It was awful. And uh, uh, they put me on a, a bicycle. To, I said, when I, I had to audition, and all I had to do was sneeze or something, one cough thing, showed up and they said, oh, you're not going to sneeze. Or cough. said, you're going to get on this exercise bike. And they didn't know I'd had a recovery from a heart attack. Uh, this fastball coming down the middle was not looking good at all. And so I made me take the chain off and I managed 
So I, I finally got, and then I got well enough to, I was offered uh, something else. Oh, oh, Pearly. Oh. I did Pearly. I was offered Pearly with the, with the, pretty much the original cast uh, and to play the old captain. God, that was wonderful. Uh, Bob Guillaume and Melvin Moore and all the wonderful cast. Uh, and I, I really loved doing that show. But uh, it, it, it was done up, up in the, it, the, uh, a college was videotaped. It's, you can get it now, it's out on videotape. I think they aired it back at the time, but those voices were in, I could, couldn't believe my eyes or ears to hear those voices. The opening number in, uh, in Pearly is one of the best opening numbers ever. Walk him up the stairs, oh, walk him up. And it became, blew the roof off of that term. Bob Yum was up there preaching and everything. So I, I, I did that and it was, it was quite wonderful. And uh, then I did uh, one night, oh, one night, one night stand. Oh, one yeah. night stand with Julie Stein again and Herb Gardner wrote the book and Julie Stein again. We, here we are back to Julie Stein and Brennan again uh, and doing this one night stand. And it seemed, everybody said, oh, Brandon, you got another hit here. Uh, Herb Gardner book and Julie Stein and music. And uh, just a wonder, Charles Kimbrough played the, the lead male role and he did a wonderful job. And with Herb Gardner, it was kind of like about his life where he was had cancer and he, but he was on stage in his white coat and hat singing the, with these, all these beautiful girls singing a song. And, and they, they didn't even have to go out of town, Charles. They had the theater party ladies, they, they heard that. So the money was made back. They didn't have to go out of town and we would do the show. But when they, they I played the producer and, uh, and, uh, when the theater party ladies came in, they sat down and all of a sudden the lead character comes out, I've got cancer and I'm gonna sing about it. But these theater party ladies, they didn't come here to hear somebody singing about cancer because yeah. they had enough of it in their lives at that age anyway. So it was like, again, Palm Beach, they started walking out, you know, start walking out in the opening at first act leaving the theater and oh my God. And pretty soon they, they, they canceled all the theater. They go, word got around, they canceled all the theater parties and, and nothing to do, couldn't do much rewrites at that, put money in the till to, to do that. So we closed and it was very sad. I, I remember going to Charles Kimbrough's dressing room and I said, Charlie, certainly wasn't your fault, pal. And he was doing a great job in the show. And, and oh, Josh Mostel's mother was in it. And I loved her. And uh, lot, lots of really good people. But uh, that was a flop. And I went right out of that show into, into uh, musical chairs. It's my last show in New York. So you're going to take, you can take a coffee break after this if you like. But I, then I'm going to go on for another two or three hours. But... <laughs> But uh, musical chairs was was done at, at, at near not not a couple of doors uptown from there. It, that was during the Needlander, 
uh, and this was upstairs at Rivoli, which is right off the corner of Times Square. And, and, and so played this little theater, nice little theater. It had been a movie house and then a theater, been probably in vaudeville and so forth. The, 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 the conceit then was that we were, the cast was on stage as an audience. And we were looking out over the audience, like we were looking at, at the stage and the people that were really in the audience were looking at us on stage and, and a musical that was going on behind us on stage. So it had a romantic thing, Ron Holgate and singing songs behind us. Tom Yurk came in and placed it after him. But um, it was really odd. But it, 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 I, to, in my mind, it worked. So we had these an audience on stage of uh, various people. Like I was, I was on stage. I, I wanted to be at the baseball game and not at the theater. My wife wanted me to be at the theater. Uh, it was uh, Patty Carr. Joy France was there with something in it to it. Ladies, and there were three guys that played critics. They had a great number about. They they had a song about critics, a tap number about critics. It's on the recording. <laughs> and it, I loved that number. I just loved it. And Joy France and I had a number, a duet. Boy, what I could have done tonight if I wouldn't stay. If I could have stayed home, and she had her counterpoint over here, and it just we just blew the roof off of me. And I I said, wait a minute, I'm leaving the show. I'd never left a show in my life because it it was there ready to go, but the music was good, the thing, but it wasn't. Rudy Tronto was a good director, but you know, Susan Stroman was his assistant. Susan Stroman, this is before she wrote even that first song. I wrote the laugh in the first song because we'd have it a lot. Uh, sing a song and 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 we stop and I'm to have a joke and we sing along and stop and she's to have a joke that kind of thing and then we finish and it's some big number then we it, it's all over then we do an encore of it and it was really a great number and I wrote I wrote it was ripe for for comedy because in the show there's an intermission so the people that are we're the audience we have an intermission so we get to talk about what we were watching which you can't imagine what the, the jokes are. They're just there ready for it. And I wrote, I wrote for the, one joke for the, the two older ladies. Um, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt had just come out about promoting her jeans. She's the one that made jeans fashionable. You could go, and I wrote a joke for them. <laughs> an old lady says to the other, said, can you believe this? Said, back in the day, everybody dressed for the theater said, look, people are wearing jeans. That Gloria Vanderbilt should be ashamed of herself. <laughs> Got a huge laugh back then. And uh, as a matter of fact, Earl Wilson came. He, I, I could see out of my eyes. I said one of my jokes. And he, I, could, I, I, I could see him lift out of his seat laughing. And he wrote in the paper the next day that Brandon Maggart was one of the funniest men in the world. And he had me come into an interview during the week. And he said, interviewed me, sat down and what a stump he was. But <laughs> he asked me, and he, it was a long interview. The only thing he printed the next day, Brandon Maggart has seven children. He In the show, he's funny or something. But he has seven children. He remembers all their names and their birth dates. That's what made his column, <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing else. So 
the show limped along. Uh, we, we, we did it. And again, I had a great time, especially when I got into helping it. Nobody ever said thank you, anything. And now the show has been out. I think it's played in, 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 in colleges and high schools all over. And, and I got a copy. And look, well, some of my stuff is still in there, but uncredited. But uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But it was uh, so. After that was my last show in in New York. That was my last Broadway show. I I, I did one more show that not in New York. I called it Nurse Jane's goes to or Nurse Jane was it the Nurse Jane goes to Hawaii with with Georgia. Ingram. That was the first time we worked together. Later on, we did it, and we did it uh, several around places. And one of the last places was at. Uh, there's a theater where the World's Fair was. Uh, theater. We did it out there. Nice cast. And uh, Joel Thurm was was a casting director back then for NBC. And his mother, this is a show business story. His mother lived in, in the neighborhood. She came to see the show and, and she spoke to Joel and said, you should get uh, George Engel and Brandon Maggard out there for one, one of your shows. Because he knew us both, and it, he said it. Well, it just made him re remind him of us, and so he flew us both out to do a, uh, to see about doing a pilot for a TV show, and it brought me for one. He said, "No, Brandon, go and do this other one, the one called uh, Jennifer Slept Here, with with uh, uh, with, with George's. George is going to be in." Said so, I auditioned for that and got it, and. Uh, and we did we did that, and it, it was uh, it was a very good. And Jillian was the star, and John Navin was the young kid, and it was a very good show. But we were put in the wrong time slot. We were on Friday night before a show called Manimal, which really bombed. But we were we were really good. I just had such a great time doing that show. It they took it off the air, but they, then they they put it back on in the summer. But everybody had already gone, and, and it was. In the summer, ranked right up there in the top 10. The reruns, they just had it in the wrong spot, but it was already, it was gone. Everybody left the show and gone on to other things, except me, I, I was still looking for work, as I, I recall. And uh, so then I, uh, I, uh, I, I was on my way back to New York. It's uh, without a show, without anything. and. And I got a call to do Brothers oh. for Showtime. I said, Showtime? I can't make enough money off. I can't do Showtime. I was, uh, had a network TV show, uh, going to be a millionaire and everything. Oh, I was going to be able to send kids to college, people to have everything, and it fell apart. And I'm, now I'm here and I'm going back. And I said, we're going. And so I went over and I looked at, read the script, and I looked and I said, this is pretty good. And I read for the show and I got it. And uh, it ran for five years. And it made me able to, that one show saved my life. And it wasn't even a network show. It was on, on Showtime. And back then, Charles, Showtime was just kind of starting out. And it divided half the country, or less than half the country with HBO. Like in New York, uh, above 79th Street, I was a big hit. Below that, nobody knew who I was because HBO was downtown. 
Now, Showtime, uh, Brothers was such a big hit, especially in the gay community, because it's the first time that, that uh, two of the main characters were playing gay. And I was playing the older brother. It kind of took over after the parents and passed on. And Bobby Walden played the Golda Point after a bar. And Paul Regina played the other brother. And I was the older brother. Philip Charles McKenzie played the uh, uh, the brother's best friend. And Philip Charles McKenzie, one of the funniest characters you ever saw in your life. Paul Regina played rather straight gay. And Philip Charles played a really flamboyant gay. Funniest son of a gun you ever saw in your life. And the audience just loved him. And they especially loved my character being, you know, making fun of him, him character, and he making fun of me. And it was a marriage made in heaven. And we had such great audiences. And it was like, it was back, I was doing, like doing burlesque with a live audience, a new play every week with a live audience. And the audiences were ready. We walked on stage and said, hello. And they went, yo, <laughs> they laughed. I never had so much fun except maybe in burlesque and, and, and doing that show. And we had fans that would show up and some of them would show up in drag. And a lot of friends, one time, they, they, they called me out in between scenes and said, Brandon, somebody wants to speak to you out in the audience. So I walked out, and it was a big guy in drag with a beard. And he walked out and he said, he said, he said, I got a question. I said, you got a question for me? He said, yes. I said, well, what is it? He said, how rich are you? Or how much money do you make? And I looked at him for a minute and I said, even with him standing there, and out of the dragon, I looked at him and said, You're all alive. And the house came down. They just blew, it blew up because it was a perfect time. So there was so much fun. We had characters with every week. We had two, two Charlies or two Roberts or two something. I can't remember right now. Great people. And one kid came backstage with his, brought his father backstage and said he wanted to meet me and meet us and said that that his father had kicked him out of the house when he found out he was gay and that he had asked the father if he would, he, he went on to San Francisco or somewhere, he asked the father back in Georgia or somewhere, said to please watch Brothers and that the father had watched Brothers the whole time and they'd got back in touch. And now they were together again, a loving father and son. And he brought the father backstage to see the show. It was one of the most gratifying moments that I've ever had, what a show can do, bringing especially father and the son together. I, I loved that show. Again, it, other than that, it also saved me. And uh, during that show, I had a tragedy happen. Uh, we were doing the show and Jerry Lewis, was again direct. He came in to direct. We stayed friends he, even after Lorelei. I mean, after Chick, after Elsa Popkin. We wonderful directors and actors, guest actors coming to do the show was just heaven. And he came in. He was directing a show. And it was going along great. And I got a call one night to my daughter Jennifer. Called and told me that uh, that uh, that Justine had been killed in a car wreck. And I was just. I just went out of my mind. I went just completely out of my mind. And I had told her, I told her, told her, I said, I'll call you back in a minute. 
And I just bought this house out here that I'm in right now. And it was empty. And I was upstairs and I was, I was like a wild, I was screaming, bellowing like an animal, like a wounded bull or a animal screaming. I finally calmed down enough to call Jennifer back. And, and yes, it was really true. And that she had been killed. And that, uh, okay, I told her just to, to, I would be get there as soon as I could, and so uh, I did. I did. I showed. I I told him that I, I, I my daughter had been killed. And I had to leave the show, and so I, I left the show and they cut me out and wrote me out of that show, and I went flew back uh, to to Connecticut and uh, for a memorial service, and it was just I was crazy. It's such a sad thing. Yeah. I want to be the next one in this group to die. No more children, please. And so then I, it was awful. So I came on back to California. They wrote me out of the show, wrote me really light because I kept, I would kept breaking down. No matter what, I'd open my mouth to say something and I'd start crying. Because of all of this, I love my children more than anything. And uh, so eventually got back and, and did the show, but while we were doing this show, when I was, they wrote me out, during the, during the note session, they had the five by eight cards. They would take notes and I would sit there like a dummy. And instead of taking notes, I'd scribble things and I started making some sort of abstract drawings and making little things. And so I went home and I started painting. I, went up, I have a loft upstairs and I painted. Made it to a studio and I started, Drawing, painting abstracts in the beginning about, I painted an abstract of how I wanted this place to be when we finally settled in. And I did that. But then I, I remembered one day a, a joke that my father, my mother had told me one time. And I said, oh, let me see if I can draw a storyboard about that joke. And that very first thing led me to like over a hundred paintings that my entire house and the storyboard of uh, I would take a, an old story and I'd do like a painting that would imply a narrative. Yeah, I put enough information in the in the photograph, like one of them I did of, uh, of uh, Jumbo, of Jimmy Durante uh, crossing the stage with Jumbo. And I said, where, where are you going with that elephant? And he said, what elephant? At the time, that was supposed to have been the biggest laugh in show business history at the time. So that was good. And some of the others uh, with old man and, and I would, and so I got so involved and carried away with that. And I painted three floors up all over the house, all up behind me, closets are filled with that. And that kind of thing buoyed me through this and which reminded me then back of in 1968, doing new faces and burlesque during the nations and in the war in the democratic national conventions. And, it, during all happening and, and, uh, and new faces opening and all that happening in the one year and I'm out on the road doing burlesque and everybody's laughing like crazy and it was so bizarre that people all over the world were being murdered and we were dropping napalm and, and uh, students of the Democratic Society were raiding into Colombia and, and all riots going on here and there and assassinations but still show business went on I was on the stage and getting laughs. It started in, in health and in, in new faces and then went out that summer. 
And during all of that, people needed relief. People needed laughter. And uh, so I, I, I took, I took a, a sustenance in that, that I was doing something that uh, did laugh. So that was, uh, then I went into writing my, after, after Brothers was over, went into the books. I, I want to ask you about something that you did earlier in your career, which was Sesame Street, the original cast on TV. Oh, that's one of the highlights of my, I, I didn't know if we'd talked about that before or not. Oh. Yeah, I was doing, at the upstairs and the downstairs, I was doing a show there. Back then, I was, I'd done all this stuff, so I'd been a waiter there. So when I went back, it was Julius Monk had left, and I was uh, Jimmy Catuzzi and I were doing a show that Bill Whedon and, and David Finkel had written, and we were doing it in the upstairs room. And it, it was we really were having a good time in that. And I got to do some of my material. I did my jug song, it was like my trunk song. I did it in Hell's a Pop in the final week. And I did it uh, in a pilot I did with Heinz Heinz and, and Dad and Robert Klein. And, and I did it in, in the upstairs room. So I did that song. And I did a parody I wrote about Glenn Campbell's, all his songs. But anyway, we were doing that show. And John Stone, who had been in some shows at the time, called me and he said, buddy, said, uh, we're doing some, I'm doing some writing and doing some, uh, I'm doing some comedy sketches for for children's television. I want to know if you'd do some sketches for me. I said, sure. He said, you need a partner. Who would you like to work with? I said, well, Jimmy's here. Jimmy and I worked great to get Jimmy Katusa. He was in the show and, and, and uh, he said, well, good. <clears throat> so he, again, back then I'm back to drinking again, right? <laughs> drinking too much at night. And so Jimmy and I were doing the show and then did the show all summer long, I think, and it was going along okay. And of course, the crowds back then. Now, I don't know if I told you this before, when Judy started out, this was the thing to do. Then along came Laugh-In, and, and a lot, they, he robbed a lot of the people out of there, a lot of other shows, and Julius went on to, to Plaza Nine, and, but the upstairs, the downstairs are still going along with uh, the people in the downstairs. Anyway, John Stone said, come do these comedy sketches. So Jimmy and I showed up, we did to the children's works, theater workshop or something. And he had written five, or someone had written five sketches. So I looked at them and said, oh, these are funny. Jimmy and I are going, because it was right out of my burlesque of slapstick comedy and silent movements of learning to do what this movement would, what information you can pay, what, pay without moving, or what to stall before you, you know you're going, to, the audience knows you're going to speak, but then you speak and how you get kicked the laughs, kick laughs and everything. And so we did these sketches and we had a great time. And ironing board sketch, I love that one, seesaw sketch. Um, so we went back to doing the show. And we did the show, and then it got to be autumn, and we were still doing the show. And I got a call, John Stone said, uh, buddy, said, you can, Jimmy, come over to the Plaza Hotel and see, with the, see the show. I said, what's what show? I'd forgotten about it. He said, you know, did you guys do sketches? I said, I said, oh, yeah, we love those. He said, well, it's, it's a show now. 
and it's on tips. Come over to the plaza. You can show up at uh, it's in time at the plaza. And uh, so Jim and I show up, didn't know what it was about. And we showed it, and gosh, the press was like crazy. Because this was the first year of Sesame Street, and it was a really wonderful project. We didn't know about it at the time, but every they had the press. It was kicked like crazy, uh, um, scoured, not down. <laughs> and and so we show up, and they start screaming. Big big room, a huge screen, and all these people dressed like they knew what they were doing, <laughs> like they had a few bucks in their pocket. And, and all of a sudden they're going along. This is nice. There's a puppet there, and he said, "There's that guy. He's a good host." He, and then she's good. And then they switch. All of a sudden it goes on to switch. Said, "Well, I wonder what Buddy and Jim are doing about blah blah." blah. And he comes on and do one of our sketches, and the audience just roared. They just like like I've said, blew the roof off too many times, but the roof was lifted quite It's like, and Jim and I looked at each other, what is this? What, what, what? We didn't know what we were doing. So anyway, that was Sesame Street. And then they, that was right before I was, in fact, I started rehearsal for applause right after that or right before it, I forget. And, and, uh, and I was doing that. And, uh, but the sketches, we didn't have to be there for them because they were just inserted in the show. But then there was such a hit, they wrote like 20 more. And so we did like 20 more of those sketches. And it's quite just, and the kids, and gosh, it was huge. We had such a national audience. The neighborhood where they had a house in the country, you go to the beach and they found out I was at the beach. <laughs> You'd think I was a movie star, you know, and it was, we did, Jimmy and I did several charity things, we raised money for schools in the neighborhood on the Upper West Side. And it was, and then uh, it, then we had a problem with, uh, they didn't want to pay us. You don't want to go into all that. But anyway, we only did the, the first season because they, they said they wanted to approve of anything. We're such a big hit. They wanted to approve of any movies or any TV commercials we did. And I said, well, I can't do that. I have a family. I can't wait for you to go to an ad agency to see if it's as bad if I can do this. So that was the, we just did the one season. And I broke my heart, but really broke Jimmy's heart because he was so invested in that. He was going around, he, he got us involved in so many charity things we did, of course, free. And one of the great writers in New York, I forget his name, we went to his home. He had a child who was uh, had problems. And we went to a couple of homes, private homes on our own. And we did a children's theater thing. Uh, we didn't know that they did some of the sketches they used in it where they didn't have the rights to. And there's a big stink about that. But Sesame Street was and is, you know, forever a mile milestone in, in television history. So I did a couple of milestones. Brothers was a milestone and Sesame Street was a milestone and uh, applause was a milestone for me at least. And, and, oh, and, I'd like to talk more as long as you nod your head up and down. I'll keep talking. <laughs> During Brothers, I told you the story about the father. So we, we finally, we did five years and 
and there was problems, so it couldn't go on. And I did uh, uh, something else after that. Oh, I did the chicken soup with Lynn Redgrave and Jackie Mason series for ABC. And that was, oh boy, what was the one? A crazy time. Because Jackie Mason, it was very political. And the show ran just, I think, nine performances. Jack, Jackie got into trouble with Mayor Dinkins. And Mayor Dinkins is a black mayor in, in New York. And Jackie had made some comment that, you know, back then everybody's so touchy about everything, but Jackie would always make it a touch further than you probably should. And we were doing, we were doing that. And, and then I had problems with that. And we had problems with the Jewish community because there was a, a, a rather far right wing of Jewish uh, rabbi out here that, that he had a, had a group of people that said, Jackie was too Jewish. <laughs> Jackie said, they tell me I'm too Jewish. I can't. He said, what am I playing? I'm playing myself. You know, I can't play too Jewish. Because Red, Red Gray was playing his girlfriend, who is, uh, you know, not Jewish, like an English, Irish, waspish kind of, kind of person. And I was her Irish brother. I met her in an Irish bar. And so, again, we were set up. Really, Irish guy, Jewish guy, and he's dating my sister. That was all set up. And when I did, oh my God, when I they they sent me the 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 script for the audition, when I had to go audition for it, and I read this, and I it had already been done. The pilot had been done, and it was the only show that was a surefire hit for the next season. And I'd worked with Lynn before, and I loved Jackie's stand-up stuff. And I'd worked with Lynn, and we liked each other very much. And and I said, "Oh God!" And and Brothers was canceled. What am I going to do? I would love to be in that show. I got a call. Oh, they're going to add two characters. Oh, what? They, they want to add a character that maybe you can play, uh, playing Lynn Redgrave's brother, Irish brother, on a bar. I said, "I, I could probably handle that." <laughs> and and uh, they sent me the script. And the script was magnificent. It was like my character is almost like Archie Bunker in, in, in parallel to, with Jackie Place, you know, Jackie, yeah, Jackie Mason, Jackie, Jackie Mason. So we had this banter back and forth. It was really funny, nothing hurtful, but like if he had a jab, I had a jab. We'd laugh at each other. And Jackie and I got along great. But, uh, but once we uh, I got, I got the job with that script. Then once I got, to, we got to that scene and they handed me the script and they had just taken the balls right out. Oh. Some of the people had gotten to them and said, no, you can't talk like that. I said, well, Archie Bunk is already doing that. And so it, it just watered it down to so it was kind of lukewarm. Yeah. But Jackie, uh, Jackie, of course, he'd do his stand-up. And I love this story. Jackie, he was scared to death. He said, Brandon, don't you ever get scared? And I said, no. I said, if I know my material, I don't get it. Because he'd come out and say, I'm scared. Every time I walk out, I don't know if it's going to do this, if it's going to do that. I don't know. And he, so he was doing, <clears throat> while we were rehearsing, he was doing a show at the, the Greek theater out here. Big outdoor theater. Packed the place. Jackie Mason, one night on. Packed the place. He said, Brandon, do you want to go with me to the show? I said, sure. So I was in the dressing room with him. 
and we're talking about this and that and about the show to do this. And he said, Jack, five minutes, Jack. I said, Jack, you got to go. He said, I know. He said about the show, but he didn't even think about it. He was going to go out there and face thousands of people. I said, Jack, you got to, what are you going to do when you got this? I don't know. I'll, go, I'll say something, they'll laugh. I'll say something else. <laughs> the way it works. I'll say something, they'll laugh. I'll say something else. They'll laugh again. I'll say something else. They'll laugh. I'll say something. It's like, you know, he's done this he's show so many times. So he knew when he, he did it on rope, he could do. But he was so, but so easy there. And he came off stage and he's like sweating and in, in the house. The audience was falling down laughing. I mean, the audience spending wings watching this. And he's coming in wings. Now he's afraid to go back on his door with ABC and do this television sitcom. <laughs> the juxtaposition for me was really, I mean, Jack Carty was just the opposite. He was so uh, effusive on stage and uh, off stage. It's another story. I guess the show finally folded. And Lynn and I were friends. We'd been friends from Hell's a Pop and, and we're friends uh, for this and went back on about our lives. And, Later on, I told you about the, the painting. Yeah, I told you about the painting and the life. Yeah, so later on, I'm with her life and I'm on my, and then she got a divorce. It was a really horrendous divorce. It was just awful. And uh, she called me one day and wanted to see me. And so we got back together and we fell in love. We spent uh, several wonderful years together. And I was with her when she passed, but uh, except I do want to say, one final thing about Lorelei. Everybody's leaving the theater and was gloomy. And I was downstairs leaving and then he, Julie Stein came around the corner. And he was going out one way and I was going this way. And he stopped me and said, Brandon, come. And he came over to me. He said, Brandon, I just want to say something. He said, I, I know that a lot of things were done to you in this show. And I, I just want you to know that I always enjoyed watching you. Thank you, Julie. Of course, then we later on we worked together again. But after all, he knew, you know, what what was being done to me all down the line on that show. But I treasure that moment with Julie. I love that guy. He had a problem too, but his was with cards. <laughs> I I would love to sort of wrap up a little bit by asking you about your books if you'd like to talk about those okay a little bit okay then i'd like to bring in my children about this again they bring my children in the book <clears throat> now i've written i've written six books i haven't sold but seven no i'm kidding <laughs> but, uh, it's hard to sell, sell books these days unless you go through other things but i like to write them and I write them and people ask me to do this and then I don't. But a lot of people read them and like them and I have a lot of fans. I, I told this to Ben and Julianne and then all during this time, my other children, I had uh, three of them went directly into show business. My son, Bran, he, he, he has toured with my youngest daughter, Fiona, who's a singer songwriter, Fiona Apple. And have dinner. Jennifer serves us a nice uh, fish and salad dinner, and we chat and talk about things. But uh, so there was Bren. He went into that. Then Maud, Maud Maggard, oh, yes. 
Yeah. Maud, her next name was Amber, Maud Amber Maggart. Now, Maud did her cabaret act. She did, I just, she's one of my favorite singers of all time. She has the, the most beautiful voice ever. And she has done cabaret and concerts all over the world. And what time I love gone when she did seven seasons there. She played four weeks every season for seven years until they closed it. And I love that Algonquin. As I said before, there's something about the Algonquin. You know, you know, of course, you know the Algonquin and all the round table and oh, you know all that. But uh, I love going there. I'd go for her opening and I'd stay upstairs. And in the lobby of the Algonquin, I got vibrant. Issues. The wit was coming out of the wallpaper and of the stories of all the people that sung in that room. And I would sit out there in the lobby in those chairs and see, watch all the people coming in and out in the show, go to watch Maud's show and the people and the, and the critics and the writers and everybody to come in and watch. And I loved them. And, but I look over there, that's where the round table was. You'd go up in the rooms, that's where all the people were. The wallpaper in there had a lot of about the hotel and, and the times all over that. And I swear to God, I could feel vibrations there. Now I'd felt this the first time was when I, I held my sister's uh, history book when I was uh, before went to, before I was six years old, and I held the book history book and I knew that I got vibrations from holding that. I knew there was things in there. There was energy in that book. And later on, I did a, a playwrights conference with Harold Clerman uh, at the Aspen, first Aspen playwright conference with Harold Clerman and, and uh, wonderful playwrights, actors all from New York. And at that time, it's in Aspen, Colorado, which is elevated 10,000 feet. And at that time, there was another conference going on about with scientists. And so there's a creative thing going on with Harold Clerman. Oh my God, what a what a dynamo he was. I got stories you wouldn't believe. Anyway, Harold Clerman, the first day, he called us into rehearsal the first day. We all sat around. We'd never met him, most of us. He came in a little bit right on time or a minute later. I don't know. He came in, looked like this little old guy walking into the room. And he started talking almost immediately. I can't remember if he introduced himself or what. We started talking, walking around, doing this, that, and the other. And he started gaining energy. He was talking. And his he gained energy and he fed on the energy he was feeding to himself. And before long, he was like elevating off almost, you could almost see him lift off the floor. He was so excited about this in the theater and the creative process. And it and hit with these people in the morning and 10,000 feet, we were up about 20,000 feet with him. He had us so excited about being involved in the, in the process that it, it was fantastic. Um, and I took, then af, after that date, he said, write something every day. And from that day on, I've written something every day, a sentence or whatever, I don't matter what, a sentence that led to a sentence or whatever, but he was fantastic. And so Harold Clemmer and I were sitting on a bench out on one of the sidewalks where the scientists were walking by and the actors were walking by in the same place. And the energy was, again, a lot of people say, oh, you didn't. I say, yes, I, I could feel it. 
and I could feel when the scientists walked by, I could feel like I could see like a, the musical bar going by and the notes weren't really notes. They were symbols for uh, iron or zinc or whatever, or energy or that, whatever. And I could feel it was like it was trying, everybody was trying to work to resolve, to resolve to something, to resolve to the end of a musical piece, to resolve to the end of a theater piece. And I felt that way on, on 57th Street around Art Carnegie Hall, walking along. If I was down in the dumps, I, if I walked along the street along 57th Street, going in front of Carnegie Hall, I got like a dopamine kick. The, the, the energy that was in the air, no other way to describe it, I would become elevated, walking along there, back there, and sometimes in Schubert Alley, the same way. So when I started writing my books, I was actually doing, uh, getting ready to do a movie with Mickey Rooney. I, uh, you remember Mickey Rooney, of course? Yes, yes. Mickey Rooney had written and directed a film called The Legend of Obi Taggart, and we we're going to do it in Santa Fe. And I'd never been to Santa Fe. And that was, he called me on, well, I was scheduled to go. And then I got from my hometown people, go back and look in the history of the family. And the last time they heard from this guy, he was, uh, he'd been some sort of wild guy. Been involved with somebody got killed in a bar in Knoxville. He had a couple of sets of children. The last time I heard from him, somebody got a postcard from Santa Fe. He wanted to know if, if I would go to Santa Fe and, and I would go to their library, their whatever, and find out if there's anything on him out there. I said, I, I wasn't really that interested in back then. But it was so intriguing because I said, I'd never been to Santa Fe in my life. And they wanted me to go to Santa Fe. So here's another thing of this energy coming together. So I went to Santa Fe and on the days off, we, we a, a movie shot set in eight, 1849, which is the time this guy was supposed to have been there in Santa Fe. And I was dressed in what would have been something of what he might've been wearing at the time in Santa Fe. So anyway, I went to the libraries there and I went down into the, it, down into the bookstores and I said, no, go, go to the courthouse and go down into the, the bowels there and go down, look through the microfiche. Okay, so I, I had enough time and went that shit click, click through. And I came upon a poem and the poem was in the first edition of the first paper of Santa Fe. And this was before it was a state. It was Santa Fe, uh, uh, American territory, US territory. And that was, it's called the New Mexican. And it was in the middle of the first page was an, an anonymously written poem. It was about a, a young boy and a, and a young girl in a garden, a vegetable garden, and about how they fall in love while picking beans. A charming little poem, anonymously written. And this is where the, I said, there's a chance it's anonymously written that that my my Henry Maggart, my ancestor, could have written that poem. Chances are, no. Chances are, but he was there during that time. And so I went out the next day shooting 
uh, out in the desert, looking up at the mountains around and said, to them, boy, Henry must have stood here looking around at these same mountains. Must have been dressed somewhat like me. And there was a guy, one of the extras on the set was like a high school teacher around Santa Fe. And he was talking about ley lines. That's L-E-Y, I don't know if you've ever heard of ley lines. Ley lines are, are supposed to be electrical currents that run, they're mapped out, that run all across the world. And there's some people who are into that know that ley lines have a conjunction there in and around Santa Fe. And I thought, well, that's really strange. Me, that guy, the time, me and this thing, and, and what if it was some vortex or something like, like, like pigeons had, they come homing into this magnetic thing, maybe have a metal in their head. They, they, how, how do they know how to get home? And, and these ley lines, do have, they have a pull. Did some way or other pull me and this character to this spot as an actor? playing up character that he might have been there at the time? Does that inspire a narrative in a fertile brain? Yes, sir, it does. That was the origin of me writing six books, that I would create a narrative going back from him, going back to coming to America, back to coming from Africa four million years ago, all the way up to discovering all the writers and all the, the, all the great wonders of the world and into the Bach. I was very heavily into Bach and got to Paris and, and I heard a, a, a violinist playing a Bach piece in the, there and it came over here. And then all of that snowball came to this and how does this all, and all my stories and everything. Okay, finally came, what oh, this is, thank you, Mr. Johann Sebastian Bach. This is a fugue. This is a musical fugue constructed so that you have a theme going here and a theme joining it, a major theme. My theme, I saw it as a, 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 an insistent cello thing in, in a fugue going from the beginning to the end. And ex-wives, my ex-lovers, which numbered <laughs> a lot of them, and, and, uh, and, all, and the people involved, the shows, everything. And how do I get all that involved? Okay, so at one point, at the end of my career, I could no longer walk. After I did those, some of those at the very end, I had a back problem. I could no longer walk, so I, I couldn't walk to auditions and I couldn't, and my memory was failing. And so I said, oh, that's when I finished painting all those pictures and things. So. I said, well, I'll, I'll do this, I could write. I knew how to write. And so I would, I would put all this together and I would put it together in, in the form of, because when I said I couldn't work, but I, I had a thing where I called my attic theater, which was my head, which is behind the proscenium arch of my brow and behind my eyes, there's this history that takes place up here from times long ago, times past. And I have my own theatrical, well-traveled theatrical trunk up there in the attic, which I have up here in my own attic here, uh, uh, my, where I paint, where I did a lot of painting and writing up there, that I would uh, go into that. I would live down here 
But when I wasn't working and I couldn't work anymore, I would go into my theater up here, into my attic. And I didn't have to deal with critics. I didn't have to raise money for shows. I didn't have to deal with people. And I could invite, my friend Marshall Barry used to invite a lot of living people out here to, to soirees. That's how I first got Maud into met Andrea Markovici and Michael Feinstein and everything. And, and so I would invite all the people that I had admired, scientists, theater people, uh, historians, everybody of uh, uh, years past, lives past. And that's, so I did productions in my book. And Vivian Lee is my lover. I, was, I admired her in movies and the stage. And, and, and she was my lover. And Mary Astor is another. And I invited all the famous chess players, musicians, uh, storytellers, even Carol Channing made a comeback <laughs> telling her sister story. Uh, so I, I made a whole a wealth, a bottomless wealth of a trunk that I've written so much about. Uh, I, I became so energized in that it has perked up the last 15 years of my life doing that and writing these books. Yeah. And this latest, latest one is, uh, I tried to, of all these books I'd written, I tried, there's the theme of the fugue in this last one. It's called Where Possums Dance and the Willow Sings. And they reference, it reference both in the, in the book. But, and I've also done audio version of it which I love doing, and a lot of people love because some people like to hear me talk other than me. So <laughs> people said, Brandon, you should do an audio book. So I, so I tell all these stories and I listen, and it's 14 hours, 14 hours of hearing me talk about all this stuff and, and all, other stuff like that. So you can get it on, on Amazon. Uh, I can get it in print on, on Kindle or on uh, on the audio book. Now I prefer the audio book if people like to listen to book. A lot of people like to listen to books these days. And so uh, uh, th that's that's essentially where I live these days. Besides my, you know, my, I told you my first little daughter went to, to, uh, to my first shows with me and she stood up and conducted that number. And then she did a little avenue with me. She went across the state. Now she went ahead and been married. She went to nursing school. She had children, and now she's sitting on the couch over there, hearing me talk for all this time, oh. <laughs> making sure I don't I don't drop the, the, the computer here or something like that. So, so we have we have dogs and cats and family. Everybody coming in from time to time, and here I am at the Venice Venice Beach. And so I, I think I've probably worn out my time, but if there was any time left, I could read a piece. If you would like to read a piece, that would be great. This piece is called On Monarch Wings, monarch referring to the butterfly, okay? <clears throat> and I'm in my attic theater at this point. As I release my mind from extraneous thoughts, words, words pregnant with possibilities begin to circle over my head not beginning to flutter down and land on my page. The proper arrangement of these words is the task at hand. 
while contemplating these scattered possibilities, a voice, a voice from within tells me to fly, to soar aloft on butterfly wings. I don't have butterfly wings. Not to worry, says a voice from within. But in the blink of an eye, I feel the gentle breeze of a, a butterfly wings on my face. And a rather flamboyant monarch butterfly with dark reddish-orange wings framed in black with white dots now sits on the tip of my nose. Hi, says he. I could really use a drink of water. If it's all right with you, I'll have me a, a little sip from your bird bath. Well, help yourself, says I. As the monarch is quietly and delicately quenching his thirst, the obvious comes to mind. Hey there, I say. I've been urged by a voice from within to fly, to soar aloft on butterfly wings. So, says he, so could you give me a lift? The monarch, spreading his majestic wings, beckons me to hop aboard. And off we go, soaring across the bejeweled canopy of the nighttime sky. Oh, oh, until softly we come to rest on the near side of the moon. Well, not much seems to be happening here on the moon. But looking back in the direction from which we came, I am near overwhelmed by the audacity with which this small, near-perfect blue and white sphere hangs suspended, slowly rotating in the immense cold vastness of space. Truly the loneliest thing that I have ever seen. My beautifully festooned butterfly friend says to me, now you take a good long look at what you see, the elaborate puzzle of which you speak. As I'm absorbing this, the wonder of this, I, I catch sight of my butterfly friend for flying away. Hey, wh where are you going? And disappearing in the nighttime sky, a tiny voice from far, far away answers, Mexico. What now? What now, I wonder? Again, the voice from within tells me, encourages me, and, and I must focus my attention on the lonely and distant orb, rotating alone in the vastness of space. And on closer look, there sits an old man he sits at a desk on an otherwise bare stage. On an even closer look, I recognize the old man being me. And yet here I sit on the near side of the moon. It seems I am both myself and himself at the same time himself seems to be carefully uh, examining individual tiles of what looks to be a, 
a puzzle, a, 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 a jigsaw puzzle. He's very interested in one particular piece of the puzzle. He's holding it, looking up close and looking close scrutiny and himself smiles and then himself disappears into the puzzle that he's holding in his hand. And he hears the soulful sound of a cello. He is in Paris. From his window, he looks down upon a small garden park. And there's the most beautiful young woman is caressing her cello with the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Her total involvement as she sensually immerses herself in the music is spellbinding. After the Bach piece, during a polite smattering of applause, she glances up to his window and smiles. He returns the smile. She smiles once again. And she begins to play Bach's cello suite number one in G major. And oh my God, transporting on wings of an angel. As she bows the cello, himself realizes that he is jealous of the cello. Oh, he is smitten. But there are so many of the other pieces of the puzzle to consider. The next day and every day for what seems to be an eternity, he looks down from his window in hopes of seeing her again. For all of his days, he will remember the young cellist, the small garden park in Paris, the music of Johann Sebastian Bach and how he had fallen so desperately in love. Back at his desk, himself begins to write about the beautiful and talented young cellist. Also, he will write about each of the other scattered pieces of the puzzle. Hopefully the puzzle will become a reasonable mosaic of his time spent on the blue and white orb that hangs alone in the vastness of space as does he. That's the end of that little piece. Well, thank you. Thank you for reading that. And that seems like a good thing with which to conclude maybe our interview. Okay, okay terrific. Go ahead, Charles. You've done it again. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for doing this. You, it's been really You've shepherded the ship for quite a while here through this. And thank you for listening. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing it. Really, it's been great. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by the cast and creative team of the new movie, The Sixth Reel, premiering at Outfest on August 19th and streaming through the 22nd. The Sixth Reel is a new movie about the world of film collectors and what happens when they encounter a legendary lost movie, London After Midnight. I will be talking with the film's co-writer, co-director, and star, Charles Bush, the co-director and co-writer Carl Andrus and actor Doug Plout. Also in the film are Julie Halston, Margaret Cho, Andre DeShields, Tim Daly, and more. So make sure to get your tickets now and then tune back in for that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>